Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. What was your first theater experience? Mine was in Stratford, Ontario, and my friend John and I had front row seats to Cyrano de Bergerac, you know, the fellow with the long nose, yeah, played by Colm Fior. This was an amazing production, of course, one of our world-class festivals. It was amazing. John Plett was from Stratford, and so we got these awesome seats. He said he's slept his way through more Shakespeare plays than most of us have ever seen, being raised in Stratford. But here we were, and it was beautiful. One of the amazing things that happened during this whole production was that these set changes would occur right in front of us, but we wouldn't see a thing. We would have other things happening in front of us. There'd be jugglers and acrobats and people engaging with the crowd, and we'd be so wowed by what was happening that then when we looked up, it was a whole new set. It was a truly amazing performance, and it was my first theater experience. Well, there's a lot happening there that we never saw, but we got to experience the beauty and the amazingness of that show. But a few years ago, as many of you know, I had the opportunity to be part of our own local theater production of White Christmas. And it was a real treat. And one of the things I got to see was how things happened behind the scenes, where things were needed and how everything worked and watching the stage crew be lined up behind the curtains. Nobody in the front could see them, but there they were ready and poised so that in the moment between a set, they would rush in, take pieces off, add new pieces, move things around. People were changing clothes behind the scenes and things are happening quick. Of course, nobody in the crowd saw because they were watching someone sing or distracted by something else. As all these things happened behind the scenes, they were just enjoying the show. Two different angles on the very same show. One where you see inside how it all happens, and the other where you just experience the beauty and the joy of the production. Well, in today's gospel story, we're going to witness an encounter with Jesus from both front of curtain as well as behind the scenes. And as we do, we are going to glimpse something so wonderful Something so beautiful and generous and rich and promising, and dare I say it, even life-changing. I'm glad that we're able to experience this encounter together. Let's crash a wedding together, just down the road from where Jesus spent the night with his first followers. I'll be your guide, and we'll walk through these wedding festivities and stop along the way and point a few things out. This story of encounter begins at the beginning of John chapter 2, where we read this. The next day, it's the next day after Jesus just had this interaction with these first followers that we looked at last week. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. 
think weddings are a big deal today? I mean, I know some of you do, that they last too long, that they cost too much. Well, weddings today are paltry affairs compared to the first century Jewish wedding. These extravaganzas were week-long, fully hosted events where neighbors and friends and family would come together from all over to party up this special covenant between a man and a woman under God. And all of you, maybe fathers of the bride right now, are taking slow breaths, thinking about, you know, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Yes, exactly. Well, here we are, a few days into this wedding party, and a major flaw has been exposed. Servant girl noticed on one of her many trips down to the cellar that the wine is almost gone. She reports this to her mistress, who many think may have been a family relation of Mary herself, and now all the servants know, behind the scenes, high anxiety is occurring. What are we going to do? Someone has royally screwed up. Likely the groom himself, maybe his dad. They didn't stock up on enough wine, and now they're facing a very embarrassing, socially offensive situation. You don't think so, do you? I know, most of us, we think, well, it's awkward, you know, for sure. Kind of like those times where we have found ourselves at the back of a long line at some catered wedding at the rec center, only to discover when we arrived up there that all the buns are gone, all the salads are gone too, all the special pickles are gone. In fact, the only thing left is like overcooked carrots and the butt end of the roast beast. That's it. They don't even have any horseradish left. And you might be a bit disappointed, maybe even a bit miffed, especially at Buddy over there, who you saw walk by with a heavily overloaded plate like he was secretly feeding a pet llama or something and then ended up dumping half of it in the garbage. Is this only my wound that I'm talking about here? Yeah, you've been there too. I know you have. Anyway, we don't really get it in our culture today. We think, oh, well, it's hard. They ran out of wine. But no big deal. You'd likely had enough anyway. Drink some water. In fact, drinking water is probably the best thing for you at this point. That's what we think. But in this culture, at this time, in this community context, running out of wine would kill this whole event, turning laughter into derision, mocking, grumbles, party over guests gone. Running out of wine would tell everyone there, in no uncertain terms, that you, our dear guests, really just weren't worth the effort or the expense. And though we wanted to celebrate with you, we cheaped out. We didn't do what was needed in order to make the celebration all that it could be. That's what it would communicate. And the result, not only would that have been a real downer to this, what was supposed to be a real celebratory event, Not only would people have left in a huff and been loud in their complaints, it would have been actually worse than that. You see, based upon the research that I've done in this passage for years, I actually think this lack of wine was likely not a sign of just bad planning or even of cheap people. You know what I think it meant? I think it's very likely this is a poor family. 
that this is a family who was actually doing their best to offer their kids a wonderful wedding celebration, but did not have enough resources to cover it all. That they likely worked out their wedding budget right down to the glass, but then those extra cousins from Nazareth showed up, and boy, can they tuck it back. You know what cousins I'm talking You have those kind of cousins, because I do too. And now they're tucking it back like this really is the unfermented grape juice that my second grade Sunday school teacher always told me it was, which it wasn't, by the way. And their whole plan is now in jeopardy. Now they're in trouble. We need to understand this. We need to feel this. Running out of wine was not just an inconvenience or an embarrassment that people would sort of shrug off and laugh off and say, ah, it's okay. No, this is actually a social disaster for this family that would have shamed this couple for years to come. Think about it. In the months that would have followed, everywhere they went, they would have met snickers and mockery over how insulting they had been to their wedding guests, how insulting they had been to them. Three years later, when poised to embrace a new business opportunity that would actually help them move forward financially, this young man would be passed over in favor of someone else because someone would say, oh, I remember how cheap he was with his own wedding, how he cut his corners. He cut corners with us too. Let's offer this opportunity to someone else. For years to come, this family would carry the notorious shame of being those guys, of being that family who botched their own kid's wedding, who were so cheap, so stingy, or so stupid that they didn't plan adequately for this grand celebration. That's the kind of shame that would have followed them in this ancient culture of honor and shame. Running out of wine is a reputation killer, making you a social pariah. Something had to be done, and Mary knew just who could do it. Jesus, her son. Jesus, who got invited to the wedding with his new friends. Jesus, who was laying low in the back of the room. Jesus can fix this situation. But Jesus wasn't quite as keen as Mary maybe thought he would be. Dear woman, that is not our problem, Jesus replied to her. My time has not yet come. Now, that might seem a bit of an odd response to our ears. Depending on what translation you read in it, it just says woman. But the accurate way is dear woman. It was a gentle term. But there's something happening in this interaction that we don't immediately catch. You see, Mary isn't just asking Jesus to run down to the store or slip over to the next farm and see if they have some extra wine. This isn't something you can just come up with on the spot. She's asking him to do something that would end up revealing who he was, something that would catalyze his own mission that would ultimately end with his crucifixion. How do I figure that? You think, well, that's not, that's not what's happening here. Well, it's because of his response, my time has not yet come. When it's seen in the whole of the gospel, this is a phrase that John is going to use over and over again throughout his gospel. It's a loaded phrase that points us toward Jesus' crucifixion. How John puts it, it puts us toward, points us toward the time when Jesus would fully reveal his glory on the cross. It's all over the place in John. It's only cryptic here at the beginning, but it's loaded nonetheless, all within this very short interaction between Jesus and his mom. 
She asks him to do something. He pushes back. But then, can we say, somewhat characteristically of a mother, perhaps, with her firstborn son, she just seems to ignore Jesus' objections and moves ahead as though he's going to do what needs to be done anyway. There's something lovely in here. Verse 5, but his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. We don't know what Mary expected exactly, but she is utterly confident that Jesus will fix this precarious situation. How? Well, let's keep going with our little wedding tour. Remember the big pots we saw when we first walked in? No? Well, notice them again. Verse 6, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, Fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, Now, dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Which had to take bravery, I think. Because, you know, who hauled all the water to fill those jars? The servants. And where did they haul it from? The well. And so at this point, exactly how, without skipping a beat, they're now going to turn around from having poured water into these jars to now dipping some out and taking it to the master of ceremonies. You know, that had to take some guts. You ought to wonder if they're thinking, is that really a thing? Is that really what's happening here? Is Jesus going to try to blow this situation wide open by showing what is really going on behind the scenes? But they do what Jesus says, which indicates that they also likely, like Mary, are privy to some behind-the-scenes action that's going on, and they may have had a little smile on their face as they went. Well, picking up in verse 9, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine First, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. Now, this must have been a bit confusing for the groom, you got to think. Because, of course, he had not, in fact, saved the best for last. In fact, this is the moment in the celebration where they were likely not only supposed to bring the cheap stuff out, from out back into the stuff the Uncle Lenny's been brewing up that's a bit yeasty, that stuff, and then add a little water to it to make it go a little further. That's the moment in the celebration we are, unaware that he had actually run out of wine. People are fine off into the week that he's thinking any wine will taste fine, but you've kept the best until last, until now? <laughs> no, actually, but surprise, yes. And there's a lot of it, like 800 bottles of vintage, somehow the finest vintage that Jesus has ever produced. What does this all mean? Well, in a moment we'll see, but let's just finish. Verse 11 and 12. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. What a great story. Well, first, let's talk about the experience of those who are in front of the curtain, where Jesus encounters 
outsiders. Who are they? Well, of course, there's the wedding guests, but even more primarily, there's the newly married couple, and there's the master of ceremonies, or the best man, all of whom have no idea, not a trace, that Jesus has done something amazing for them. No idea at all. It's all party on Garth and party on Wayne, and they have no idea that they have just been saved from some massive social disaster. They know Jesus is there, he's a guest, he's a cousin, whatever, but they don't know that he has just saved them from disgrace. And here's the thing. Through this encounter, this front of curtain encounter, they experience incredible blessing. A blessing on their marriage. A blessing on their celebration. A blessing on their family and friends. A blessing that would yield goodness to them for years to come. Because rather than being known as the family who cheaped out on their own wedding, they would now be known as the family who saved the best for last. Like instead of the opposite, the the cheap, stingy side, it's the family that went all out, extravagantly generous with everyone who came. And friends, that's a family you want to stay connected to. That's a family you want to do business with. That's a guy you could trust. Jesus, through this blessing, changes the future of this family. But they didn't know that. And that's actually important. It's important to the story. Because sometimes you've maybe wondered, or could wonder even here, like, why didn't Jesus tell them? Like, why didn't he, like, hey, right at that moment when the master ceremony goes, wow, you saved the best for last. Why didn't Jesus sort of pop out at that moment and say, it was me, I did it, ta-da! You know? Awkward, perhaps, but true. I saved the day. Well, that's not Jesus at all. The story tells us that. First of all, it would have ruined the whole point, right? I mean, Jesus might have been the hero in the eyes of the guest and, you know, went out of the wedding on the shoulders of others. Wow, look at what he did. But this family still would have looked cheap, still would have been shamed and insulting. But it also tells us something about Jesus, too, but it reveals who he is. You see, through this front of curtain encounter, Jesus reveals his generosity, which enables people's flourishing. Jesus is a humble servant here, and he's blessing others who don't even know it. This is one of the things I love about Jesus. He loves to extravagantly generously bless people to enable their flourishing. Like fine wine, generous blessing just flows out of Jesus. And this act of goodness, power, grace, turning water into wine, it actually points toward his ultimate purpose. Jesus has come to renew creation. Jesus has come to restore blessing, to cover over shame, to avert disaster, to bring on God's true celebration. This is what he's all about. 
And the image of the wedding feast is something that is a very big deal throughout the Scripture story. Many of the prophets spoke about a time coming when all would gather at God's table and experience His bounty. In Isaiah 25, we're told that the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Jesus himself used many wedding stories to talk about the kingdom of God. And then at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation written by John, we see the marriage of the lamb and the bride, metaphors for Jesus and the church where all of creation is renewed and all disaster has been averted and amazing celebration is now happening, all covered over by God's generous blessing. And so here at this wedding feast, something of that story is being captured in this coming together of the bride and groom, this one flesh of husband and wife, which itself ultimately points to the oneness of God with his people, where all wrongs are righted and joys are fully realized when all that is wrong has been made right. Well, front of curtain, no one knew any of that. Because Jesus, in his humility and in his grace, knew that this blessing would really enable their flourishing. And so he remains hidden from them, at least at the event itself. I'm absolutely convinced that later on the next week when they were reflecting on why was the wine so good at the end that finally one of the servants broke the news to the couple, by the way, you ought to meet or get to know or talk a little more with Jesus about that. I think they found out later. Well, before we move behind the scenes, Let me offer you a couple questions for reflection, for conversation with you among spiritual friends or fellow seekers. Here's the question I love you to grapple with. When you look back on your own life, when did God bless you, but you didn't even know it? When did God bless you, but you didn't even know it? That might take some reflection, but I encourage you to do that. And how does that behind-the-scenes encounter, whether it's in your own life or even here in the story of this wedding, how does that help you trust Jesus even more? Reflect on those questions. Discuss them. But now let's go behind the scenes where Jesus encounters insiders. Because as we saw, not everyone was clueless to what had happened. Mom knows what Jesus did. The servants know. The disciples know. Maybe they even helped haul the water. Through this behind-the-scenes encounter, where they all watch Jesus humbly bless this couple who don't even realize what's happening, Jesus reveals his glory, inspiring people's belief. This sign, as John calls it, and sign is something that John is going to use repetitively throughout his gospel as a way of pointing us to who Jesus truly is something to watch for when you read it. Well, this first sign, happening behind the scenes and known only to a few, solidifies their trust in Jesus. Because remember, the disciples in particular, they're new followers of Jesus. They've only been with him for a few hours, maybe 24. I mean, a week before, they're fishing with no idea who Jesus is or how their lives were going to change. And now they're on the inside. Now they're behind the scenes. Now they're seeing something happen before them that they never would have dreamed. Jesus has this power, yes, but this grace, this generosity, this humility. And what does that mean 
It inspires their belief in him. You know, Nathaniel was promised right at the end of chapter 1 that if he came and followed Jesus, he would see even greater things than what he had seen at the end of, of chapter 1. Even greater things. And it's kind of a funny little note that Nathaniel, we don't find out till the end of the story, this is actually Nathaniel's hometown. He's from Cana. And it's here in Cana that he sees something even greater than he could have imagined. And he, along with the other followers of Jesus, it inspires their faith, their trust in Jesus. Well, what did they see here? What inspired that? Or maybe more accurately, what does John want us to see and hear? We who get to witness this now, what's happening behind the scenes. Well, this first sign of glory, turning water into wine, is loaded with promise. I've already told you that one of the pictures the prophets used to depict God's good future was a banquet with fine wine and rich meats. But here in the story, John is speaking volumes about Jesus and what he will do. You see, those pots that were used, they weren't picked by accident by Jesus. They weren't included in the story as a little side note. Those six water jars were used for Jewish ceremonial cleansing. And now Jesus takes those very pots. Listen, friends, think about it through. Think through it for a moment. If they've run out of wine, do you think maybe there were empty jars other than those six water pots lying around? There would have been tons of them. Lots of empty jars around. But Jesus singles out those six water pots used for ceremonial cleansing and says, fill those up. He uses pots which represent the old covenant way of cleansing and he transforms them into containers of new covenant wine. John does not want us to miss this, that those jars, those stone jars now filled with wine, would never again be used for ceremonial washing. They've been ruined for it, you could say. The wine would have made that impossible. John is pointing with this sign to the fact that new creation has come in Jesus. That Jesus has come to be the cleansing for us, to cover over our shame, to fill us up with new life, that the old really is passing away because the new life has come. Now, we aren't going there now, today, even in this series, but the very next story in John, where Jesus drives the sacrificial animals out of the temple, it's another vivid way of saying the exact same thing. New creation has come in Jesus. The wine is proof positive of that. In the next story, the Lamb of God drives the sacrificial lambs out of the temple. We can't miss this. This glory that Jesus begins to reveal here will only be fully seen, though it will be missed by many, when Jesus himself is hung on the cross, sacrificed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. Now, did his disciples catch all that? Very unlikely that they did. It would, only later as the Holy Spirit revealed this to them that they understood even the scene that they had been part of. But John means for us to catch it. In some special way, as people reading this story today, we are able to go even further 
behind the scenes than any of these characters because we're able to look at this event in its whole context, knowing where Jesus was going, seeing how the rest of the story unfolded, knowing that what Jesus will do to bless the world, even when the world doesn't know it, even when the world doesn't see it, that he will go to the cross and generously provide all that they need for life itself, even when they were unaware of it. And that inspires belief in anyone who discovers what Jesus has done. I just love Jesus. I mean, this sign right here at the beginning is so revealing about who he is. How Jesus cares for this wedding couple. It reveals his true character. How he humbly covers our sin and our shame. Even as he powerfully works to renew all of creation through his life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus' very life is a promise, loaded with guarantee that new creation has come. And as we see him doing that, yes, here in the Gospels, yes, in these stories of encounter, also in our own lives, he inspires our trust in him too. He's worthy of it. We can follow him and know that he's leading us to life. Let's come back to the same two questions I already asked, but with a slightly different focus now. Listen, where do you see Jesus caring for others who maybe don't even realize it? Just like you were, you know, reflect back on your own life, where do you see that happening in others' lives? Where the bounty and generosity of Jesus is flowing to others who may not yet be aware of it? Where do you see that happening? And how does watching Jesus care for others inspire you to trust him further? I invite you to talk about that with friends, with family. You know, though, as I reflected on this story a little more, I was also drawn to one further implication for us. We will often be called to respond to the needs of others in a similar behind-the-scenes kind of way. To be a blessing to those who may never even know it. People are in crisis everywhere. All around us. Shame threatens to destroy. People are scrambling to even survive. And when we, like Jesus, are made aware, are able to see those situations, Jesus, who humbly serves behind the scenes to bless and enable others flourishing, he then calls us to do the same. He calls us to fix situations, to cover blunders, to help make people's lives better, even make their celebrations great. Even when we might not think initially that it's any of our business. Jesus leads us to bless without fanfare, to serve without needing to be noticed to enable people's flourishing, whether that's the flourishing of their marriage, the flourishing of their emotional health, the flourishing of their backyard garden, the flourishing of their relationships with their kids, the flourishing of schools and businesses, the flourishing of creation itself. Jesus, our new creation king, he calls us to offer this same Jesus-style new creation blessing. Even if you're simply a guest at a wedding and you got ramrodded into helping because the caterer sucked. I think this is powerful stuff. I think this challenges me, invites us, to consider how, like Jesus, 
we can actually make other people look great. <laughs> to get in there, but to serve without a claim. To be the kind of people, even the kind of church that just goes out to bless, 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 and serve, 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 making heroes out of others. Wherever we go, where somehow without regard for our own name, or our own reputation, or even being noticed, that we, we who've witnessed the generosity and the grace of Jesus, that we could be new creation too, poured out of us like the finest wine that Jesus ever produced. Listen, whether we are behind the scenes or in front of the curtain, we encounter this amazing Jesus who blesses with generosity and inspires us to trust him further. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.